it's uh, the problem that we're running into with these parables, right, is how many of you had heard that story before? Yeah? How many of you heard that story before in church? Probably where you would hear the story. If, you, if you've been around any time at any church, you've run into this passage. You've run into the story of the prodigal son. And you've seen the sermons or you've seen the Rembrandt painting, and we know all about it. Our familiarity kind of traps us in these parables, especially one like this. We're used to it. It's kind of like seeing an old movie over and over and over again. And at some point, you stop crying when Goose dies at Top Gun. It's just, you know, you just kind of get numb to it. Goose dies in the first Top Gun, in case you guys didn't know. But you, you kind of get old. It's just like, ah, oh, okay, that's just what it was. And so you, we missed the shock that this parable would have had in this society. And it's easy to do that with most of Scripture. When you look at David and Goliath or, or the, the Scriptures that we're so accustomed to, we kind of miss what's going on. And so uh, a lot of times when I run into this, because I do too, uh, I like to look back on what would have been like for this text to be taught to those people in that day for the very first time. It's kind of a nerd thing to do, but it's just what we do when we look at Scripture. Scripture is constantly teaching us. Scripture is alive. Scripture tells us and has authority over us today. So it's best that we get used to finding out what's going on inside Scripture, especially with those first hearers. Now, it's still, you don't have to know the, what the first hearers were experiencing in order to get anything out of Scripture that's still applicable today without that. But it opens up so much more, especially to this story, when we look around at what this story would have meant. We miss things with it. If I told you, uh, or if you told uh, the first century Jew a story about a, a very well-to-do wealthy son who went off into a country and then found his way home and then welcomed back, any Jewish person of that day, and so maybe some even today, would automatically think that you're talking about something that happened to them hundreds of years prior to this, the exile of Israel. Uh, no matter how hard you try to see things, and this, we do this too, when we think of stories, we start identifying with our history into what's going on with this story. If you were to talk to me about Saturday morning chores that you do now, my brain instantly goes to the Saturday morning chores I did with my dad in the backyard trying to fix a pool pump. That's what we did on Saturdays, or pulling weeds. I go there. If we try to identify it, so if Jesus is telling a story about a son who was sent off and then came back, they think exile. They go back to their very beginning. They go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the first exodus, the first exile, when they're in Egypt for 400 years. And then they came back, and then they start thinking through the monarchy of David and, and all of the kings, and then the time that the kings took the country or the nation into idolatry and sin. And the punishment of that idolatry and sin was that they left in disgrace for another country called the exile. You can read about this in the prophets. The, the Jewish people leave. Assyria comes in, and then Babylon comes in, and they wipe out what was known as Israel. And then, if you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, you see and you read about the return of exile. They come back. They rebuild the temple, or somewhat of the temple. They, they retake their land. This is what they were looking for. Exile to them, and the hope that they would have is that God would fully restore them back to where they were. That was the promise. 
but not just restored in a, a literal way, but fully restored in a way that was geog geographically, they would have their land. Politically, they wouldn't be under the thumb of a foreign oppressor or ruler. Uh, spiritually, they would have their temple, and their temple would be operating the way it should have been operating this whole time. They would get that back. And then heavenly, as I like to say, they would experience what they would hope for was a forgiveness of sins. And so this was all tied with this idea of exile and return. And so during the New Testament, and, and most of Paul, Paul's writings, when you're reading about what they were experiencing, this was their secret hope that they were watching for, they were looking for. They were under the impression at this time that Jesus is telling this, that they're still in exile. Yes, they have the geography back. They have their land back. Uh, they have a little bit of political thing, but there's still a country over them. Rome is in the neighborhood. It was Greece before them. Rome is still there. They're not free politically. Their temple is uh, uh, like a paper doll. It doesn't really mean anything. It's so corrupt, and they all know it's corrupt. It's not full fulfilling its original intent. Things for them, this does not look like, ex this does not look like exile is completed. It's still up in the air. When exile is done, the phrase was this, that God would come and live in the temple. And at this point, if you go back and look at all the writings, none of those phrases were ever around in the time of Jesus. In their mind, God was not living in the temple yet. Therefore, exile is still going on. Therefore, forgiveness of sins is not possible. So when you see Jesus, and he likes to make a lot of people mad, say, your sins are forgiven, and they go, how can he do this? There's two things to this. Only God can forgive sins, and God's not in the temple. So how is he doing this? It would have blown their minds, because none of this had happened yet. And they were waiting. And so this is one of, the, this is one of those reasons that they have a strong reaction to Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus is proclaiming the end of exile, and all of the Jews are around going, nope, I don't understand. You can't say this kind of thing here, because it's not happened. Rome is still around. The temple is not working the way it's supposed to be. We have our land. We have one for four. We're 25% we're there. I did math right there. Are you impressed? We're not there yet, Jesus. How can you say these things? Then there's Jesus telling a story about exile and return, and then forgiveness of sins, and then resurrection. Did you notice those two phrases? Uh, in verse 24, for the son of mine was dead and is now alive again. And the very end, when he's talking to the older brother, your brother is, was dead and now he's alive again. So you start seeing Jesus picking up on these little nuggets of what's going on in this world. And the more you see this, the more this parable begins uh, to take on a whole different meaning. These are clues that Jesus' audience would have definitely picked up on. This wasn't a story about individuals, which we like to take it as. We like to say, well, there's the father, there's the older son, younger son, then there's the audience. And we like to say, this is about those individuals. No, 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 no. This is about a much bigger picture than those individuals. Could it be about those individuals? Yes. You could take it that way. You'll be fine. But the historical background of this is Jesus is talking about exile and return and the story is not about a son or an older son. The story is about this father who has this covenant love with his children, and he's going to fulfill the covenant that he had made. 
And if you know your Bible and your history, uh, some people, when those exiles came back in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's resistance, right? They didn't want these people home. Some people did not go to Assyria in 720. Some people did not go into Babylon in 536 B.C. Some people stayed in the land. And when they stayed in the land, they made do with what they had. And so when these exiles come back, there's resistance. This is where the, the group of people in the New Testament we hear of, of the Samaritans come in. They didn't like the people who went off into the land and came back. They left. They were quitters in their minds. They had worshipped false gods. They had eaten bad, unclean food. They had intermarried. Why are we letting them back in the land? So there was a resistance to this. And you see it in Ezra, Nehemiah especially, where they're trying to stop what they're rebuilding. They didn't want them to rebuild. They didn't want them to return. They were fine without them. They got along just great. Why are they coming back for this? Can't they just stay where they were? And so Jesus is telling this story in this way with the elder brother at the scene at the very end of it, which is an anticlimax to the story. The story doesn't end. It's a part of the whole story's point. Suppose Jesus was fulfilling the covenant that God had, had made. Suppose Jesus was saying that I'm showing you that God keeps his promises. In that case, there are people coming back from exile with Jesus. Who does Jesus invite into his parties? It says in Luke 15, 1, right here, tax collectors and sinners. People who wanted, they wanted to be kept out. And here's Jesus making people angry at the setting of this parable saying, tax collectors, sinners, you're with me. Come on in. And then you have this group of older brothers, people who have stayed faithful to the law, saying, we don't want them here in our party. We don't want them at all. And so Jesus is saying, you are taking this role as the older brother, as the Samaritan here. You're keeping people out. Exile and return and the resistance that's felt on both ends of that spectrum. And in the middle of it, we see this grand picture of God. All of this, when you keep all of this in mind, takes, makes this parable uh, take new shape and, and new meaning because when Jesus told this parable, it was a highly political statement he was making. We like to say that Jesus didn't get political. Oh, yeah, he did. He, he angered every side possible, which is probably the best place we could be. Uh, anger them all. Uh, and that's probably where God wants us to be. We don't affiliate with one or the other. We affiliate with this king called Jesus, and he's who we follow. And so Jesus was going around announcing this new kingdom, which made it political, and that God was becoming king. And it just wasn't happening in the usual way that they, those who were looking for it was, were wanting it to happen. Then he has welcoming all of these wrong people into this. Jesus wasn't playing their game of saying that Israel had to be the pure one. Jesus is saying, yeah, but these people are in too. Tax collectors and sinners. And so instead of endorsing their political party and their ultra-holy and their, their ultra people motivation, Jesus was inviting people to come in that they would have wanted to stay out of the party. And the Pharisees and scribes come grumbling to Jesus about this. This is the whole setting leading up, and that word grumbling shows up in one other place in the Bible, back in Exodus, where the people grumbled against God, where they said, we don't want to be here in the desert. We'd rather be in Egypt. They grumbled and complained. And so all through Luke, we hear Jesus announcing that this great moment is here, 
and it's not looking like everyone would want. So the point of the parable is that the resurrection they were looking for is happening right now, right underneath their feet. And if you are so blind that you can't see it, they can't see it because it's, it's not what they wanted to. And if you go on in that blindness, you're writing yourself into the story as the person you don't want to be, as the Samaritan, as the one who's resisting the movement of God, as the one who's not going along and not seeing God's grace and God's extravagant love. They oppose the return of anybody from exile. So in this, Jesus is not just telling a parable. He's retelling the entire story of Israel within a parable and it undermines his opponent's beliefs and his opponents, it undermines his opponent's attempts to trap him and it upholds his point in being there. Jesus' story functions as a picture of his whole ministry. This story explains why Jesus' actions were in his mind appropriate and their minds inappropriate. More significantly, Jesus is also doing something with us and with them in that time of correcting their view of God. The parable has more to do with God's actions than anybody else's actions. There's more even to that. That's one view to looking at it, but there's even more. Many studies have been done on this period of time, and when they come back, they tell you some things that you would have never guessed us living here in 2022 and them living then in like 1 or 2 AD. We have never guessed some of those things that pop in this story. So we're going to read through it, and we'll pop. We'll, we'll look at a couple of them. Some of them you may be like, yeah, I heard that before. Good. Listen to it again. Try it on again. Look again. Okay, so Jesus continued. He had told a story about a lost coin and a lost sheep, people coming back, people being lost and now found. And this is the, the climax of the chapter, and he says this is the parable. We call it the lost son, but let's call it the loving father. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided the property between them. First off, Jesus tells parables that are shocking to people. If this would have happened, and if it would have happened today, it probably would have been that you'd have this kind of reaction. You never go to your living parent. This is good for us in 2022. Never go to your living parent and say, I'd like my inheritance. It doesn't look good, right? Because what are you saying? wish you were dead. You're dead to me. Uh, I can't wait for you to die, so give me my money. In other words, all that you're good for is this cash bag that happens after you flatline, and that's what I'm looking forward to. So hurry up and get there. Uh, there's a man named Kenneth Bailey. He writes, he writes books. He was a missionary in, uh, in the Middle East, particularly to the peasant culture in the Middle East, uh, 40 years ago, and he was there for like 40 years. And so he writes some interesting commentary having lived there, having studied there, about how stories like this would have taken. In his 40 years of doing ministry in that area, he, never, he only saw this happen twice. The first time, he, he's asking these villagers what would happen, and they said, oh, this happened once, and the father beat him to an inch of his life. And it was okay that the father did that, because in the honor-shame culture, you don't do this to your dad. And the second time that it happened, uh, the son went and asked for his inheritance, and, and the father died a week later of a broken heart, they say, because he had lost the respect of his family. So when Jesus tells this parable, a son goes to the father, give me the estate, they're expecting this son to get the tar kicked out of him, right? 
But what does the father do? Here's your money. I divide the estate and give it to you. And the audience is going, this, this doesn't make any sense. This was shocking. No one behaves like this. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off to a distant country. There he squandered all of his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, a person who wasn't Jewish, and he was set to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Because the son goes off and squanders all he had, he ends up working with pigs for a Gentile boss. Pigs in the Jewish faith in this time are no-no. They're an unclean animal. And he's working for a non-Jew. If you can define rock bottom for a Jewish person at this time, this is below that. Okay, this is lower than you could ever go. And then uh, uh, one rabbi describes it just as that. This is, you can't get much more disgraceful than this. Verse 17, then he came to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like the one of your hired servants. So he got up and went. Now, he's religiously unclean. He shamed his father by saying, I wish you were dead. And now he's walking back in. This would have never happened. The only way that they would have allowed you back into the village is if you go away Strike it big, like you won the Mega Millions draw last night, 530 million. I don't know who won it, it wasn't me. But you come back in, this is the only way that you'd be accepted. You're high rolling now, you roll in in a Bentley or whatever the equivalent was there. This was the only way you're allowed back. You've made it, and you're coming back to show it off. Does the son do that? Did he make it? No, he lost everything. The son has now brought double shame to his father, but not only his father, the village, because now they have this guy back. But what's the father do? But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed them. Do you see why this is more about the father's movements than the son's movements? The first thing that's usually noted is that the father was watching for his son to return. But what's even more striking is what happens after this. In that culture, senior members of the community, and I can get really behind this, they don't run. Seriously, running was a no-no. Moving quickly was a no-no. If you were dignified, if you were a senior standing in the community, and it's still like this in some of these places now, the slower you move, the more important you are. I'm going to be very important. That sounds wonderful. Dignity matters. People who run are undignified. There's a verse in Proverbs that say, if you run when no one's chasing you, it means you're evil. It's a great verse, Deb. Uh, she's a runner. But there's, there's this thing where it's like, hey, we don't run. And what's the father doing? He's sprinting. He's shaming himself. In order to run, he would have had to hike up his robe and show his legs, which is another no-no. And he's running through town in the middle of the day, it would be somewhat like he's streaking. Okay, this would have been bad, and everyone would have noticed that that guy is running. He's throwing all of his dignity out the window. 
He doesn't care what the village thinks. He doesn't care that this is now triple disgrace on his family. He loves his son. And his son is coming back from the dead. And this is the force of him running. Then he continues, the son said to him, Father, I sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The dad interrupts. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He's lost and he's found. There's a few actions here that raise some eyebrows. He doesn't answer his son's request, or he does, but he doesn't say no. He doesn't say yes. Instead, what's he do? Puts a ring on his finger, the family seal. You're still in the family, kid. This is you. You're still here. And then he takes off of his robe and puts it on him, probably the dad's robe. Look, when they see you, they don't see your disgrace. They see my robe. Now, I'm going to be the one standing here half naked. You're going to be clothed. And then shoes. I like shoes, right? But slaves don't wear shoes. Most likely, this son was barefoot when he came in. The father takes off his shoes, puts shoes on him. And then he says, kill the fattened calf. And I get excited there because that means, might mean brisket and steak, which is going to be awesome. But a fatted calf doesn't feed the four of their family or whoever's else. A fatted calf would probably feed more like 100 or 200 people. This is a feast. This is a wedding party. This was his son, and he's not going to have a Costco pizza party here. He's going to go all out. And he does this, and the older son then makes his interest. And what's he say? Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, probably working. When he came near the house, he heard the music, saw the dancing. He called to one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? The servant said, your brother's come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, asked, because he has him back safe and sound. Here's another thing. The older son begins to argue with his father. In that time, in that culture, I wish it was the same here, in our culture, sons don't argue with dads. If I can impart this on my very strong personality six-year-old, sons don't argue with dads. In this culture, it would have never happened. And then he does it in public. Everyone can see what's going on. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. They noticed that the older brother's sitting outside, and dad went out to get him. And he's angry. They see the, vo they see the gestures. They probably hear the voices. But he answered his father and says, Look, all of these years, I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed you. You've never given me a young goat so I could celebrate with just my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered everything with your, with your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. Did you pick up on what the son says? I've slaved for you. I've been your slave this entire time. The younger son comes and says, I'm not worthy to be called your slave, or your son make me your slave. This older son, who is still a son, says, I'm nothing but a slave to you. This is another way of implying, I wish you were dead. I wish there was no relationship we hear. You've never given me land or inheritance. You never throw me a party. You, you were in control of this land this whole time. Uh, I was just kind of standing there waiting for my hand, waiting with my hand out, waiting for you to die, but I never said it out loud. But what's he saying now? I wish you were dead. 
He wished his father was, he could get out of the way so he can get on with his own wild living, right? He thought he was playing by the rules and doing everything right. Yet, again, the father shows what? More love. The whole village has now watched this undignified family drama play out right in front of them. He's already lost everything he's had. He's given away half of his estate to his son who blew it. He's lost all the dignity by running through the streets. He's lost even more dignity by his son arguing with him in public. And instead of throwing the brother out, the older brother out, he goes out and tries to reason with him graciously and gently. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and now he's alive, he was lost, and now he's found. And in the final moments of the parable, we realize that this story is still not complete. It's a literary trick that storytellers use, right? They don't tell the end of the story. They make you decide how it ends. Have we ever seen Inception? He spins the top. Does the top fall or does the top stay? Is he in his dream or is he not? And then you argue it over, over dinner, right? No, it's this way or it's this way. The story is unended. Did he come back in or did he stay out? Uh, did, did the brothers break out in a fist fight like brothers usually do at this point? Or did they have a peaceful relationship there? Did the older brother collect his inheritance and leave just like the younger brother did? Or did the family reconcile? Jesus leaves this story undone as if to say, find yourself in this story and then you act out the conclusion. Are you going to stay outside of the party? Or are you going to come in? Or are you going to be the Samaritan? Or are you going to be the one who returns? Are you going to respond to this father's extravagant love? Jesus acts out the role of the father. He tells the story of the prodigal father to illustrate and affirm that he welcomes the outcasts. And the astonishing and shocking welcome to the tax collectors and sinners, the ones who are off the streets, and the Gentiles. And he tries to stop those from keeping them out. He says, no, they're in this with us. They were lost. Now they're found. There's the debate happening. Why is Jesus doing this? And instead of slamming back at them, he tells them a story. He says, look out, older brother. You're putting yourself in the story in the wrong character but I'm going to be gracious enough to you to come out and invite you to come back in. Jesus is acting out the welcome of God, not only as the waiting father, but as the prodigal father. The exile of Israel is over with. Don't miss the party. The exile happened back in those times because of idolatry. To this point, God's response was like what we see with the father here. They, the people of Israel came with idolatry and said, I wish you were dead. And God goes with them and goes, okay, I have two options here, God says in the prophets. I can wipe you out or I can let you go on with your sinning. What's God do? He allows them the free choice. He says, fine, if you want to be that way, cool, go. But you can never fall out of my love. This is what the father showing the older brother here. You'll never fall out of my love. My love will turn to grief instead of anger, and you will go into exile. And they did. Israel fell out of God's favor, but they never fell out of God's love. He grieved over them. 
So when Israel is brought back, it's because God has thrown caution to the wind, right? He's like the father here. He throws caution to the wind. He wishes them to come back while they're wishing that he's dead. And this is precisely what we see in the text. But then the older brother, the scribes, the Pharisees were saying, I wish you were dead for letting these people back in. How dare you? And what does Jesus do? Their actions wish Jesus was dead. And Jesus goes, okay. And he goes to the Calvary and then just does exactly that. The rejection of his people. In John 1.11 it says, He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Uh, in some strange way, Jesus is also identifying here with the prodigals. It's almost as though he's the son that en- enters the far country in order to get the son in the far country back. He's, sh- he's shamed, he's naked, he's thirsty, he's dying alone on the cross to prove the love of the Father. But then what happens next? Resurrection. So what we find here is that Jesus is showing us uh, more, more than just two sons, the truth about God and the fact that it is so stunning that we almost forget it. It might be something that we understand, you and I, from time to time, and we'll say God is so loving and kind and gracious, and we'll quote Hosea and Joel and all the prophets, gracious and kind and long-suffering and, and always wanting us back, and we, we kind of say it so much that, like this story, our familiarity blinds us to it. Jesus is saying that his love is so big we can barely get our arms around it. It's like trying to lift a refrigerator box all by yourself. It just doesn't happen. A big refrigerator, not these little tiny ones, but a decent-sized refrigerator. You can't do it alone. This is the truth about God. But the human race has been like the sons. And we've said, I wish you were dead. We see this in Genesis 3. I wish you were dead. We're going to go eat that tree. We'd prefer to have our idols. We'd prefer to have our idols of sex, money, power, position. We'd rather not have this God telling us how to live, right? We don't want that. We don't want to change. And God's response is what? Do what you're going to do. This is the beauty of free will. God's not going to make you a robot and make you love him. But he's going to say, you do what you do, fair enough. I'm not going to end you for this. You'll come to the end of your road like this son did at some point. And when you do, so be it. And he allowed the human race to sin, and it shows that God's intention is that we choose him just as much as he loves us. In the end, what's God do? He stretches out his hands in the person of Christ and says, come back. There's a party, and it's just for you. And yet people will say, we don't want this God, we don't want this gospel, it's too shocking, it crumbles our pride, it hurts us when we see the love and grace that God has for us. We don't want it. And so God continues and saying, look, there's still time for you to respond while you're still breathing here, there's still time for you to respond to this love that God has for you. I want you in this party. You don't want to miss it. And so this parable is more than just two sons, it's It's more than just the extreme love of the Father. It's the story of humanity, all wrapped up in 15 verses. It's the story of us, to use the TV show that makes everyone cry. This is us. We're the younger son, and we refuse. We're the older son, and we get angry. And God's still sitting there going, yeah, 
got this party for you. You can choose to come in or you choose to not. And when Luke writes this, he's thinking of people like us. No doubt, this is written, Luke's gospel is written later in, in, in the timeline. The story of Acts is playing out as Luke is writing this. And he's thinking of all the people who are not Jewish being invited into the party and all the people who are in the party getting angry because the people who are not Jewish are coming in. And he's going, this is what God, Jesus, was trying to say to us. It's playing out all through us. So with new eyes, we can look at this parable in drastically new ways. First, this parable should bring a fresh vision to the generous love of the one true God. Uh, we, I, we were watching uh, Love and Thunder, the Thor movie, and I don't know if you've seen it, but I'll ruin it for you. Um, you should have seen it by now. So there's, the, uh, there's this pic- the, it plays with this picture of God. God is either distant and doesn't care, or God is like Thor, who actually gets involved in our lives and does what he can do to save us. This is the picture of God. It's correcting. God is actually trying to win us back. Because we've all said with, to God, with our actions or in some way or another, I wish you weren't there. And God says, fine, I'm still going to die for you. But even now we say, I know Jesus died for me, but I still, still want to live life my way. I still want to do what I want. I still, I still don't want to live by your rules and what the scripture tells us. I want to have my own views and my own, my own feelings. I want to follow them instead of what I know is true. And so we fight God. And God comes outside to meet us and says, I get it. I'm still throwing a party. And I want you to come back. And it's not complete until you're there. The story's not over until you make your decision. What are you going to do? So it's a fresh view of God's love. No matter how far we go, whether to the far country or just outside the tent where the party's happening, the invitation still stands. You can come back. There's still room for you at the party. You've got to live in God's way? It's okay. It's better in, inside the party than outside looking at it. The second way we can say it is that it puts a fresh vision on what we as a church should be doing. Our world is an exile. The exile of Israel is a great picture of how the world has turned its back on God. Many in exile find themselves bruised, hungry, battered, alone. They don't know what to think about God, they don't know what to think about the God who made them, and they don't even probably don't even think about him at all. But everyone thinks, no matter where you are on that spectrum, you think that there is a better way to be human, that there is a better way to live. And deep down, there ought to be someone welcoming them home, and everyone wants to have this hope. Everyone wants hope. We're hungry for hope. And when they come back, when they've made, uh, when they may have the wrong words. When they come back to God, they might have the wrong words. They might be dressed differently. They might not have their theology. They might have a, a lifestyle that we don't really look at greatly. Well, they might be different from us. And it's okay. We welcome them. Why? Because they have to pick up the rhythm of the party at some point. And they come in. And us as a church, we can be the older brother and say, you're not allowed. Or we can say, come on in. Let me show you how to dance to God's beat. Let me show you this. Let me show you the rhythms of God's grace. Let me introduce you to Jesus. And by the power of your spirit, your life will be transformed. 
Jesus loves them the way they are when they come in, refuses to leave them that way. Jesus loves you the same way. You have some transformation to do as well. And so in the power of the Spirit, us as a church must be to the world what Jesus was to the people of that day. Welcoming and allowing them to come in and get a taste of how good God is and saying this is the way that God intended you to live. And when you live a different way, you're not going to have that hope and that peace that you've always wanted. That's our job as a church. There's a message then also for our culture, our culture in exile. We see violence increasing. We see the respect for other humans going down. We see all kinds of things that signal that we are heading in a rough direction. And like the older brother, our culture says, we wish God were dead. We've heard about Jesus. We don't want to hear about this guy anymore. We don't want to hear about God anymore. So now we must continue to show the world the fact that our God is generous and loving and kind. That we believe in a prodigal father. We believe in a prodigal son like Jesus who comes to us shamed and dies for us in the far country of the cross but doesn't stay there that rises again so that we can have a new life. We believe in the prodigal spirit that is poured out in us so much and empowers us and gifts us and gives us courage to complete the task to now proclaim the good gospel of that prodigal father to a world that is hungry looking for hope. This parable has so many facets that go away when we get more familiar to it. But it's challenging to every single one of us. We can all find ourselves in here. How do you respond to the love of the Father? Is it something that you want to tell other people about? Or is it something that you keep to yourself? Have you responded to the love of the Father? Or are you still outside the tent, angry that so-and-so is here? How are you going to respond at the end of the story. Are you going to come back from your far country? The far countries of our addictions, of our pride, of, of the secret sins that we have. Are you coming back from the far country? Or are you going to stay there? In slavery, at rock bottom. Or are you going to come back and say, Father, and he's not going to let you get a word out of your mouth. He's going to say, come on in. i got brisket for you. How do you respond to the love of the Father? Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your love, for your amazing grace that you have, this tremendous and fantastic and, and love that we can ever grasp fully. We thank you for this love. We thank you that the invitation is out to all to come to be a part of this party that you've given us. The invitation's there. Come and be transformed. Come and live this new life. Leave your old life. Experience the new. Leave your old hang-ups. Leave your own habits. Stop looking at your life the way you feel it should be and start looking at your life the way it was intended to be. With the truth of your word and the power of your spirit proclaiming to us, this is how we should live. Allow us the courage to respond to that and come into the party.
Help us to release our idols that keep us in exile. And grab on to the hope of freedom from exile and return. We thank you for your love. Help us to receive your love today. In Jesus' name, amen.